0: Welcome to Genuine Humans, exploring the stories behind the great marketing leaders of our time and hearing how their journeys
1: have influenced the brands they've built.
0: Brought to you by The Social Element, here are our hosts, Tamara Littleton, CEO and Founder, and Wendy Christie, Chief People Officer.
1: A big warm welcome to our listeners from me, Tamara Littleton, and my co-host, Wendy. Wendy, how's your week been? Hi, Tamara. It's been really good, thank you. Um, as we record this, we're in the middle
0: of the Euros, and my other half and I have become armchair experts, despite only watching football
1: once every two years. I, th- I think that's the best way. You see, I used to play football. I used to play for Hackney Women's Football Club, but I was the only one who didn't actually support a team. But I feel like it is my right that every year I can become an expert watching the England games, but um, yeah, <laughs> let's say we are delighted to be joined today by Craig Inglis, who has worked for Thompson Holidays, Virgin Rail, and more recently, John Lewis. And he is also the non-executive global chair for the Marketing Society. Craig, a big warm welcome.
2: Uh, thank you. Good morning. How are you?
1: Uh, really good. Thank you. It's lovely to have you here, and do you know what? We're going to just kick off straight away because Craig, I love hearing about people's journey into marketing and maybe finding out about the twists and turns along the way. So, would you mind just sharing your story? And you can go back as as far as you want.
2: Oh, that's dangerous going <laughs> back. Well, look, I saw. So I, uh, as you might be able to tell from the accent, I grew up in Scotland. Uh, I I grew up in a little. Uh, a little mining town on the east coast of Scotland called Leven, uh, not far from St Andrews in Edinburgh, and uh, I was uh, one of I or I am one of three boys. I was the middle one, so I've sort of carried a chip around on my shoulder for for many many years as a <laughs> consequence. Yeah, I mean, I think childhood was ba- was was basically great fun, but we didn't have much. We we I grew up in a council estate, and and life was pretty. Pretty tough in many ways, as I look back, but it didn't feel like that, if that makes sense. And when I went to school, no one really went on to, to uni at school. It was, it was not the done thing. People tended to go on to become welders and fitters and things like that because it was well-paid. I think it was about 300 quid a week, which seemed like millions at the time. But uh, so I was one of just a few people who went. actually went on to, to uni, three of us. And uh, so slightly against the odds. And so I, I uh, went on to, to uni from school, to study business and marketing and so from quite early on uh, I had an interest in marketing I'm not sure I knew that it was marketing mind but uh, I was definitely interested in consumers and business and and the sort of the various dynamics around that and um, I did really well at uni I uh, managed to get myself a first I still don't quite know how I did that but through just sheer hard work and determination I think and then I I left there in 1992 which I've just realized is 30 years ago next year, <laughs> oh my word. Uh, I left with a backpack, I got on the train at Edinburgh and ended up in London and worked to work for uh, Thomson Holidays, as you said, and joined the graduate training scheme for marketing, which was fantastic. It was it was my apprenticeship, really, in marketing. And the friends I made there are still some of my closest friends today, which I think speaks volumes. And uh, But I, I loved it. I was enticed into the, the role by uh, a brochure in the careers room at uni we had actual careers room with actual brochures back in those days, and on the front was a was a, a deserted beach with a with a palm tree, and I thought, ooh, that looks like work. I mean, that's the kind of work that I want. <laughs> and also, you know, I, I just I, so I love the intrigue of the travel industry, but I, I was also just really taken with the idea that Thomson was all about building people's dreams; that, that that was their their purpose, which might seem a bit grandiose for a business that that's sold package holidays, but but actually, their customers, you know, they saved up all year for the two weeks in the sun. And, and it was great to be part of, of the team that created those those dreams. So, so I loved that. I learned uh, loads about pricing and product and all those sorts of things. So I did that for about four years or so. And then and then I, I left and went traveling around the world for a year because I realized that despite being in Mallorca 27 times in, in four years and the Algarve 15 times, it wasn't quite uh, quenching my thirst for travel. So I went off traveling for a year and then came back and saw Richard Branson on the telly on the news hanging out at the front of a train and declaring that he was going to revolutionize the UK's railways uh, by bringing sort of Virgin Atlantic service to to trains and uh, I was completely seduced again by this vision and the belief that he had and so I joined Virgin Trains uh, as a a product manager and um, it was really tough way tougher than Richard or any of us ever expected I think because in effect we, we were taking what was you know part of the civil service and and trying to turn it into a sort of entrepreneurial virgin business and uh, it was the first virgin business that wasn't a startup and so it was you know, mm. it was things that we learned that just had never been learned before so it was very very tough for the first few years but we we got there and we did i think revolutionize uh, trains in this country and uh, sadly virgin trains no longer exists, but uh, but whilst it was there i think it made a massive difference to this country so so i, I loved every moment of that and uh, it was the making of me i left there as sales and marketing director and then in 2008, I joined, uh, I left there, joined John Lewis. Again, I was sort of taken by the the purpose, I think. John Lewis is is all about having, having a better way of doing business. It's owned and run by its partners and uh, that meant something to me. And and that side, I I, um, I had a sense as a marketeer that it was a bit of a sleeping giant of a brand. It felt like there was huge opportunity. They hadn't really embraced marketing up until that point. And, uh, and so I really felt I could make a difference. Mm-hmm. So yeah, joined there and as head of brand communications, doing the advertising and so on. And again, the sort of first year or two was quite bumpy. And then, and then I became marketing director, took on a sort of bigger remit, and started the sort of transformation around the brand that has become well known. And in 2015, I joined the main board as customer director and took on responsibility really for every part of the customer experience. Um, and the team grew from 30 to 600. So it was a big old job, covered all the digital channels and changes in shops and all those kind of things. So, yeah, so I I, um, did that for five years or so, left there last year. There's been a whole sea of changes at John does in the last uh, year or so, and I'm now looking for a new job. So um, if anybody's listening in who thinks, you know, he sounds all right, he's not made a complete idiot of himself. (laughs) I'm sure you can get my details. But, uh, and as well as that, I'm also non-exec chair of the Marketing Society, which, as you said, which is... uh, which I've been doing for about three years and is is a great privilege and is is really all about um, ensuring that marketers in this country and across our six hubs around the world can be their best possible selves. And we stand up for the marketing industry.
1: You talk about the sort of sense of purpose with the brands that you've kind of connected with. Do you think that it was... That that's what pulled you into the different brands. I mean, you sort of said, obviously, you were seduced by wanting to sell holidays and, and you know, selling a, a essentially a, a dream. But was it also, you know, connecting to Richard Branson and to John Lewis, which is a very sort of well-loved uh, brand? Do you think it was kind of purpose first?
2: Yes, I think it was. And I, I, I'm not sure if I would have been able to articulate that to you at the time. Intuitively, I think I might have known. But um, looking back you know it's very very clear to me that in each case it was the the purpose the belief the the, the thing that drove the whole business that, that drew me in and actually and also that kept me there I look at uh, my time at Virgin and then again at John Lewis lots of the cohort that I joined with I joined with sort of a group of maybe you know 10 people
0: yeah.
2: many of them had gone after a year or two and I stayed stayed the course and I've, I've only worked for three brands really which is you know is, is nothing uh, for most marketeers most marketeers are, are in their jobs a couple of years you know so and I stayed because I'm a complete finisher. I like, mm. I like to see stuff out to my, to my cost, I think, sometimes.
0: We're really curious about what we're like as kids, how that shapes us when we end up as adults. And you've talked a little bit about being that middle child in leaving. How much do you think that shaped where you ended up? And when you were little, what did you want to be? Well, I, I mean,
2: I, I... I... I'm, I'm sure it inevitably shaped me. I'm not sure if I could put my finger on specific things or specific moments that, that drove me to where I am today. But as a child, I think I would describe myself as, a, as an enthusiastic leader. So some of that was good and some of that was bad. <laughs> so, so, you know, the, the, the good was I was captain of the school rugby team. I was captain of the athletics team. I, was, I played the lead in lots of school plays. I mean, I, you know, anything was going on, I would throw myself into it. So I was sort of very enthusiastic leader maybe slightly misplaced at times I don't know but then on the bad I mean my mum if she were here bless her soul would say whenever there was any bother going on I was usually at the center of it and <laughs> uh, not that I ever admitted it Mike as always I had two brothers to blame particularly my younger brother um, who was persecuted but so I think I think inevitably those things do shape you and I see I see lots of those traits still in, in myself I think it terms of what I wanted to be I wanted to be lots of things It changed every 10 minutes but early on, I remember wanting to be a policeman, which seems a bit weird now, uh, or, or a jet pilot. And then I realized I was colorblind. So you couldn't do that when you were colour. I don't know why you have to be able to see colors uh, as a policeman. I can sort of understand as a jet pilot, maybe. But anyway, you don't want to press the wrong button, do you? Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so that went out the window. And then I wanted to be an actor. I really wanted to be an actor. And um, I had sort of uh, dreams of, of going to drama school and stuff. And and this is maybe where my sort of upbringing bringing did affect me because actually it just seemed such a pipe dream, so unreachable, and mm-hmm. I had no idea of how to get into a drama school, or even what they were. Uh, so that sort of passed me by, really, and so uh, I slightly regret that. But um, but then, as I said earlier, I was drawn towards business, and I remember you know being in school and talking to a teacher, and she guided me, guided me down that path as I was thinking about uni, and uh, and that was really influential, obviously in terms of what I've ended up doing.
0: You've mentioned, we've talked obviously about the three big brands that you've worked for. Did you have any awful part-time jobs or anything as a teenager or a student?
2: Oh, it's so mad. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I've done, I started work at 12. I don't know if that's even legal. I mean, I'm not sure. Probably not. What were
1: you doing at 12?
2: (laughs) I had two paper rounds, two Uh. paper rounds at 12. And then I also, I mean, I had some really awful jobs, but the thing that jumps out is uh, uh potato picking so i don't know if either of you have ever picked potatoes oh my word it's the hardest thing i've ever done i i remember getting you get picked up at five o'clock in the morning it's freezing cold getting in the back of a smelly old dirty truck to be carted to a field somewhere and then i mean it's quite fascinating that it's sort of partly automated but mainly down to human endeavor that potatoes come out of the ground so, so you you you're allocated a a space is called a bit which is a bit unimaginative I think <laughs> but you, have, you have your bit which is maybe like four or five meters long and then the machine comes along to kind of dig up the potatoes and the machine's called the driller because all those rows that you see in the field they're called drills so the machine comes along you get down behind it and then you pick your potatoes frantically from your bit and then before, just as you finished, you think can get a breather the machine blooming comes round again and so I just remember thinking this is relentless and it got to like seven in the morning I felt like I'd done three days work <laughs> so so I, I didn't last long at that I didn't last long but uh, I, I actually spent most of my teens working in a supermarket right I did that for about four or five years presto
0: I remember presto yeah. do you remember presto,
2: mm-hmm. the, the presto manifesto <laughs> that was their sort of marketing tagline oh uh, what well, I did all sorts of jobs there and some really terrible ones and gutting fish and I don't know, putting the bins out for the whole day, and actually, but the thing I loved the most was catching shoplifters. So I was, I was for a while, while allocated that job, which in the main I quite enjoyed. It sort of felt like being a spy. That was your inner
0: policeman coming out again.
2: Well, maybe it was, but I I, even that turned a bit nasty because I remember at one point being punched in the face Mm. by a woman uh, as I apprehended her at the bus stop uh, with a whole salmon down her top. (laughs) 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 Literally, a whole salmon. Anyway, she punched me, and I just let her go with the salmon. But that uh, so was that was a grounding moment.
1: You have to pick your battles. Yeah, yeah I definitely
2: had my fair share. <laughs> I'm,
1: I'm curious to know though: were you an undercover detective, or were you actually in the uniform? I'm, I'm, I don't know why I need to know. I just need to know.
2: <laughs> I mean, I, un- undercover in the sense that we took our white coats off and went out in our civvies. I mean, that, that was it. You know, just <laughs> and and just skulked around behind the sort of beer, the beer aisle or whatever, and just tried to catch people out. But. Uh, Oh, the things that went on.
1: Mm-hmm. Very funny. Looking for suspicious fish down the tops. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: mean, you'd think if you were going to nick some salmon, you'd go for a small pack, wouldn't you? Not a whole one.
1: Quite. Maybe she was going to
2: sell some it. some advice for your listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Good advice. <laughs> Top tips. Yeah.
0: Again, looking back, this time to your teenage self, what advice would you give yourself now?
2: I think I would say not to follow the pack and to trust your intuition and be okay with carving your own path and, and, and doing things differently. That, that's I would say that's my mantra now has been for quite a long time I'm sort of quite happy being that person quite in fact I revel, revel in it I think but I'm not sure I knew that then and and uh, I, I don't know if it held me back but I, I would definitely be more likely to accept what I was told mm-hmm. back then and, and maybe just go with what the accepted wisdom was whereas whereas now I really don't know, I'd be much more likely to challenge it and, and be prepared to yeah to do my own thing so that would be I think yeah I think that would be my advice to myself it's tough isn't it because i
0: mean still see it now people don't often respond well to a, a chat you know a teenager who's challenging you know and who is pu- pushing back even though it's probably perfectly the right thing for them to do maybe it's just a time thing maybe it's just a thing that you have to learn
2: i think life might have changed you know i, I think i think life's moved on um i look at my kids now all of my kids have really got strong opinions on, on the world mm. Uh, and the, you know the, the, the much talked about uh, millennials and Gen, Gen Z and, and them having opinions on the world and in particular in climate change and so. I mean, I, I see it playing out every day. And my 11 uh, year old girl Scarlett, she she is 11, going on 21. And I mean, she's got such strong views on on everything, which I love. Mm-hmm. I really sort of encourage it. And she's got into a ruck this week with some teachers, uh, which I think is brilliant because <laughs> they they wouldn't um, let them celebrate Pride Month. Uh, yeah. They'd gone into they'd gone into school with um, they bought these little kind of rainbow flags on on basically on cocktail sticks right I mean it's ridiculous the story but uh, and and the, 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 they were handing out the flags to their friends and saying oh it's Pride Month we should celebrate and they were confiscated because they were sharp oh so uh, anyway her and her friend carried on and handed them out and got themselves the detention I was like good girl good for you. <laughs> Some things you've got to stand up for. So, yeah, yeah, so I I think they are definitely more opinionated and and good on them for it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I was talking to um, the the CMO of Guild, Michelle Goodall, about um, uh, she's got teenagers and she was talking about the the Minecraft generation, about the fact that they are not just sort of talking about changing the world, they're, they're doers, they build things and that they just get on and just... Fix things and change the world, and I just thought it was such a lovely sort of phrase about being the the Minecraft generation.
2: That's really interesting. I mean, it's, Minecraft is now I mean, they all play. Actually, even my my eldest is at uni, and he's gone back to Minecraft, which mm-hmm. I find slightly bizarre. But him and I caught him and my sixteen year old son playing Minecraft. I was like, Have you guys gone back to this? You know, it's, it's been years. And they've been drawn back in, so there might be something in that.
1: I wonder if that's a pandemic thing, because I, I must admit, I've been going back to watching episodes of Friends and things like that. Stuff that I watched years ago is a sort of comfort blanket, I think. might That's
2: not going to allow you to build anything, is it? Though, <laughs>
1: no, games. it's not. That not, <laughs> not the Minecraft generation. That's a waste <laughs> of a day. <laughs> There's 10
0: years between my two sons, and my youngest is 17, and they game together, but I mean, they don't live together. And Minecraft is definitely it's something that comes back every now and then and it's just a lovely bonding thing they might otherwise not have any contact particularly you know so i think there's a lot to be said for it Mm. so thinking of the people that you've worked with over the years which genuine humans have influenced you the most
2: there really have been so many i i um i think it's a very difficult question i mean there's there's been so many people through my career who i would say have been prepared to take a chance on me at times when I've just been slightly perplexed that they've taken a chance on me, you know, and, and but they've seen something and taken a punt. And, uh, you know, it goes, goes way back, really. Um, I think back to my Thompson days, there was a guy called Nigel David, who was, a, who was my first proper boss, and he, he was the first person to promote me and also the first person to reject me for a promotion. And... In both cases, he was spot on. I, I was absolutely not ready for the, the, the second one, but um, and he, so he was a very clever guy and really got the measure of me, but really backed me in a number of things. And and then likewise at Virgin, there was a guy called Mark Furlong, who who was the first person to, who promoted me to marketing director, who who saw, believed in the, the vision that I had for the brand. And then at John Lewis, uh, it, it, the people are numerous. Uh, Andy Street, who was the MD of John Lewis, is now the, the mayor of, of the West Midlands, weirdly. He was the person who promoted me to the board seems ridiculous now saying it in a way, but but it was an unusual appointment. It was a, we, He actually created a role. There was no customer director. There was right. no sense of what that even was, but he was prepared to go with it on the basis that him and I could work it out together. And then uh, uh, a couple of amazing women, Jill jo- Little, who was sort of really ran the business during that time. Uh, she was the person who, who I went to work for because the person that recruited me left the business. I went to work for her and I, I didn't think it was gonna be a match a good match and actually she was really the making of me she gave me the air cover i would say to get the brilliant work done that sort of became sort of famous at john lewis and uh, because she believed in it and uh and then that carried on with paula paula nichols who was my most recent boss she um, so often against her own better judgment went with my my gut my 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 belief in what was right so so, you know, those people I, I have uh, nothing but admiration and, and and respect and gratitude for. And actually I've, I've really tried to take that through my own career as a leader and and make sure that when there are moments where you think someone's 50-50 is you give them the benefit of the doubt mm-hmm. and, and give them the opportunity. And I have to say it's always paid off. Not once have those people let me down and, and I'm very proud of, of those people and what they've gone on to do. So I think it's definitely a behaviour breeds behaviours. Mm-hmm.
1: I know at the Marketing Society there's been a, a, a big focus on pushing brands to be brave. Would you say that that's been a personal mantra for the, the brands on, under your watch as well?
2: I'm not sure if I could ever claim it was a mantra, but it's definitely something that sort of bubbled along under, underneath for, for, for a, long, a long time. I mean, I, I, it depends what you mean by brave, I guess, but I, I can definitely say hand on heart that I've, I've always had lofty ambitions for the, for the brands that I've worked for. And we talked earlier about the belief and the purpose, and you know what we were setting out to do, and I really believed in those. And so, I've just wanted to make sure that the the work that we do is the best it can be, and and really, for me, for me that's about doing the right thing by the customer. It nearly always comes back to that, and that means it means setting a high bar and being pretty restless and re- relentless in that restlessness around around doing the right thing and you know john knows one of the things i was most proud of is the the team that i worked most closely with on all of the marketing communications so we 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 never believed the hype we we enjoyed it and just let it play out but we never believed the hype it was always about the next thing and there is some risk in that because the risk is that you you don't stop to celebrate Mm -hmm. but um i think as time moved on, we sort of learned to find the balance but in the main we were always kind of pushing for more and pushing for to do the right thing by the customer, which which means being prepared, as we talked earlier, being prepared to stand up and be the lone voice in the room, and you know sometimes flow against the tide. Would, many many times in in the boardroom, I would I would be a lone voice, and uh, as I said earlier, I sort of quite revelled in that, but not everyone does. So it does take courage, I think.
1: Mm-hmm. Actually, something that has just occurred to me that I I will probably never get a chance to ask again, but um, the Christmas campaigns for John Lewis, how far in advance were you planning? And how much pressure was that?
2: Well, you would typically be planning as soon as we came out of Christmas. So, so yeah, Christmas yeah. would be done, you'd be exhausted. And then, I mean, literally the first week in January, we would we would come together, uh, the John Lowe's team and then, and then the sort of various agencies come together and a big old room and just go, right, what do we think of that? Mm-hmm. And we'd do a proper review in terms of the data and the analytics and so on, but also just, you know, how do we feel about it? We'd look at everybody else's uh, work across the world and just have a good old day of, of reflecting. And then that would be the beginning of the process for, for starting again. And so we'd be, we, we got to the point actually where we didn't have to brief it anymore because it was the same brief every year mm-hmm. uh, around thoughtful gifting. But you know, the briefing effectively would happen in January. And then yeah, we would then be into sort of scripts and uh, ideas sort of February into March. And depending on how well that went, you know, you'd be signing something off around sort of March, April, and then, and then off into production in mm-hmm. sort of May and then through the summer. So that was the kind of rhythm. And then the pressure point. Honestly, I've been asked that question so many times, and I, you know, I'm, I, it's it maybe sounds a bit arrogant, but I never felt that pressure. And yeah. and it's it's not that's really not drawn out of arrogance. It's uh, I enjoyed it so much, mm. really enjoyed it, revelled in it, and it felt a privilege to be part of it. It was really special, and that uh, was the overwhelming emotion, and that overcame any sort of pressure or any other the naysayers. There was lots of naysayers in in, in the business and around, and there's always people who. You will criticise if you put your your head above the parapet. Mm -hmm. On the day that it launches, I mean, you know, it never ceased to amaze me, the sort of reaction that it's had. It's a bit like having a baby and, you know, (laughs) showing it to people and thinking, God, I really hope it's not ugly. (laughs) Because I think it's beautiful. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, there's a lot of pressure. But then, you know, and and it nearly always went well, but inevitably you get some naysayers. So, yeah, I, I mainly just loved it
1: well, I guess as you said, you had to kind of not believe the hype, but I suppose in in a similar way kind of not take on the criticism as well because you just drive yourself crazy.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So which brands have have been impressing you recently then you kind of you've got uh, you know you can have like a holistic view which which would you say are the ones to watch?
2: Well I think digital has uh, I mean obviously changed the world, but I think when it comes to brands changed, changed brand behavior and and in a good way I think because there's sort of there's a trans, an inherent transparency that comes with digital that forces brands to behave in a different way I think and those that perhaps haven't grown up with digital are sort of slightly on the back foot so if I'll give you a couple of examples I uh, do you know Patch? Patch is a sort of indoor plants, actually outdoor plants now as well, but mainly indoor plants business. If you don't know Patch, then mm-hmm. then go and have a look them up. They are quite remarkable business, uh, I think. So a really small scale, they they've managed to take what's a I mean a category which is I think relatively low interest. I've never been that interested in plants particularly, but they've humanised the whole thing to the to the point that the plants have names, right? So. I'm looking at a plant right in front of me now, which is called Big Ken. I, mean, I just love. We've got three Big Kens in the house, uh, and so each plant's got a, a human name. And that aside, they they, they copy the tone of voice, the, the use of video, they use their staff really prominently in the video. It's just all so human. And when you when you buy a plant, you get a course in how to be a parent plant oh, wow. parent, and you know it's a sort of program of like I think it's ten emails you get, and each one of them has got real depth about. All the different aspects of looking after plants. I never thought I'd find myself saying this, by the way, but, <laughs> uh, but now I really care about that, and I just think they are a very human business, and, and their customer experience goes incredible. And a similar uh, business is Bloom and Wild.
1: Oh yes, and Bloom and yeah. Wild, which
2: is in the, in the flower business, you know, sending flowers through the door. And I think they've taken it even further; they're more established, but they, they, uh, in particular, have sort of just absolutely nailed the customer experience. They have a team, the Customer Delight Team and a head of Customer Delight. I mean, just a great title apart from anything else, but they are renowned for their customer experience and actually lots of what they've done has gone viral. I don't, I don't know if you've seen any of it, but they there was a case, an example, in Mother's Day earlier this year where a customer was due to receive um, flowers on Mother's Day and the head of Customer Delight was concerned that the, the flowers were taking a bit longer in the supply chain than they normally would. So the stage they were at was a bit behind where it should be. So, in anticipation, there might be a problem down the line. They sent another another set of flowers. Wow! I mean, and so this exchange went on just because she had to tell the customer like you're going to get some. You might get two sets of flowers, one sets on us. You know, so she this was an email exchange, and then the the customer then uh, posted it on in, in social. And of course, it went viral. You know, and it's just a remarkable story. And, and so the way that they treat their customers is quite remarkable, and they do lots on top. There, they've got lots of programs in their community all around sort of supporting carers and they're big on sustainability. Um, got a really sort of transparent uh, perspective on sustainability, which I think is is something that permeates I lots of other great brands at the moment. I think it's one of the things that's defining the those that are great and, and, and those that are struggling, I think. And, bec- and it's about taking a front foot approach to sustainability, not seeing it as one of the hard things you've got to do in the, in the too difficult part, but actually seeing it as an opportunity for the brand and commercially as well and you know if, if i think about brands like Pat- uh, patagonia is the obvious one uh, but there's a brand called everlane which is a, a u.s retailer which uh, i don't know if you know them but they they produce um you know high quality uh wardrobe essentials i would probably call them so like a sort of um slightly more modern equivalent of the gap back in the day and but they are all about um sustainability and have been since the start if you click on an everlane product you can normally see where the product has come from, the individual product, but you can see the factory, you can see videos of the factory, you can see the staff, you can see the programs they've got in place to support wow. those people in Thailand or Vietnam or wherever it is. And as someone who used to run sourcing um, and sustainability at John Lewis, I know just how hard this mm-hmm. is. I mean, it's incredibly difficult and so good on them. And they, they also have something called radical transparency. So you can, any of their prices of their products, they break down into its component parts mm-hmm. so you can see the cost of the goods themselves, the cost of shipping, the cost of uh, their their margin, so they're transparent about their margin, It just changes the whole relationship Mm -hmm. with the customer. And so I I think that's the way the world's moving and actually COVID, one of the great upsides of COVID is I think in general, it has made brands more human, Mm -hmm. more aware of the importance of humanity and how fragile it all is. Uh, And there's a sort of a a humility that perhaps didn't exist before. So I think I see that as a, a, a great upside.
1: I think that's a trend that we've definitely seen at the social element with, um, you know, clients and, and brands that we talk to about that desire to have more of that human connection. What do you think brands can do to be more human?
2: Well, if if I was going to be more human to you, Tamara, I would. It would start with me understanding you, because empathy is drawn out of understanding. Mm. Uh, and getting beyond, you know, what you see in front of you and and really deeply understanding someone. I think it's exactly the same for brands. It starts with deeply understanding your customers. And I think that's so often underlooked. So understanding every part of their lives, how do do they feel about the market you're in? How do they feel about you as a brand? What's great? And and most importantly, what's not great? Mm -hmm. And really facing right into that. And as I look back at my time at John Lewis, the most pivotal thing that, that we did was the first ever customer strategy, which was all about, this space is about well, deeply understanding, attitudinally what was going on with the customer base I and mean, how they felt about the brand mm. and, and the role that John, John Lewis played in their lives. So I think it all starts there. And 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 then that determines where you put in your discretionary effort on behalf of your customers, because you can't do everything. You know, you, just, you have got to prioritise in business in, in reality. And I think, you know, spreading your bets too far means you're going to do nothing well. So I think really focusing your discretionary effort where it really matters is the beginnings of Connecting with your customers and it seeming to them it was it, that you are doing the right thing by them, and it changes their perceptions, and inevitably makes makes a stronger connection between the brand and the and the customer. You know, and I think that's where the the, the secret lies. I mean, the Blue and Wild example is a brilliant example. Another one, more closer to home for me, was Waitrose. So, Waitrose uh, have really ramped up their their digital operation, and as a, a consequence of COVID. And when we were doing that, they, they, we sort of did lots of research with them and our cattle customers and so on. and They would talk about, you know, lots of things in relation to the this, this service. But the two things that really mattered to them the most were, one, can I trust the person who I'm going to let come over the threshold in my house when I'm stood there in my dressing gown at some god-awful hour in the morning? And two, they check the eggs, right? <laughs> so they check the eggs was the thing. And, it, and when I remember being in this research group and it was a sort of, it was like a, a ripple through the room when someone mentioned checking the eggs. Oh yes, they check the eggs, it's brilliant. And it's not really about the eggs per se. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a sort of practical bit of that. It talks much more about the care that's taken and the humanity of the individuals that they would be bothered to check the eggs. So, so those moments really matter, I think. And that's what brands need to be thinking about. And uh, beyond that, I think it's, it's about the communication you know it all starts there um your tone of voice and ensuring that you know you you understand uh, your customers and that, that the empathy you feel comes across in in, in your communication to them and I, I think that's the thing that i've seen uh, change up for the good in the last
1: year yeah it's a really really good point it's funny the the strength of the waitrose brand for my mother who um, had somehow convinced herself that in the, the height of the pandemic, that it was totally fine to go and shop in Waitrose because you, you wouldn't catch COVID in Waitrose. <laughs> <laughs> that says a lot about the brand.
2: That is brilliant. That is brilliant.
1: <laughs> so you have worked with some in, incredible brands, Craig. But what are you personally most proud of in your career so far?
2: Well, I mean, there's lots of things I could mention. and We've touched on a few but I, I think the old adage that you are only as good as the people around you is something that, you know, I really believe in. It's, it's a cliche for a good reason. And so, you know, I think what I'm most proud of is, is the, the teams that I've had the, the privilege of building and leading. And, you know, I sort of look at John Lewis. I, I said earlier that we, we sort of grew up from a team of 30 marketeers to, to, to 600 people from you know, all walks of life and different backgrounds. And I th- you know, so i very proud of, of what we achieved and this, the size of that team was a consequence of us driving a sort of customer transformation. Mm-hmm. The, the customer genuinely became central in the, in, the, in, the, in the business over the course of that time. And that was a testament, I think, to the work we had done because every time you achieve something, it gives you a mandate to push a bit further. And so it was the consequence of lots of years of work so partly about what we drove, but but in the main about the brilliant, dynamic, diverse, vibrant culture that we created. You know, it's a brilliant place to work. And uh, you know, I think back. I was just reflecting actually a few days ago with with some of my my old leadership team, and and we created something special. And it was great to be there. And and that's where the magic happens. That's where great work comes from. So I feel I feel very proud of those teams and what they achieved, and and but more importantly, that how it felt to work there. Mm. Beyond that. We've touched on the sort of brand communication stuff with John Lewis. You know, it's it's obviously something I'm very proud of. It's also a bloody arbitrage around my neck. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it comes up all the time. But but in the main, it's, it's you know, something I'm very, very proud of. And um, I hope it continues, and not just because of the public reaction and stuff, but because of the, the huge change we saw in terms of how the brand was perceived and, Awareness and consideration, all those things, and and, and effectiveness, return on investment was was incredible. So, uh, there's some good commercial reasons for being proud of it too.
1: Yeah, and going back to your teams, I'm I'm intrigued about how would you how would you describe your style of leadership?
2: Well, this is something I'm pretty well versed in because I'm doing interviews at the moment. So you have to say <laughs> <have to>, <laughs> there's a sort of interview version and then the sort of real version. So hopefully, no interviews are listening. Look, an ex-colleague said to me actually a few weeks ago. Uh, Someone who worked in the people team at John Lewis, she said to me that she, and I quote, I always uh, knew what your opinion was, Craig, as you were very clear on that, i.e. your opinionated. <laughs> but she also knew that it always, it always came from the heart and with positive intent. And and I think the last part of that is so important. When someone's got positive intent, it sort of means almost everything, I think. So uh, I thought it was really nice she said that, and I think it sums me up. I, I hope I vain." Sort of straightforwardness and honesty with just you know genuine warmth and empathy i'm a really good listener and i really care deeply about people and i know that other people can see that you know and so i build great relationships there's, there's i could count on one hand the people that i've not managed to build a relationship with mm-hmm. and uh and each one of them still slightly buns a hole in the side of my skull because i haven't cracked them <laughs> so i you know doesn't matter who they are, where they're from, the kind of people they are, can usually build common ground and build a relationship because I'm a good listener, I think. Um, so I think that, that probably sums me up.
1: Are you saying that you don't have a good poker face as well, if, if that your, your previous uh, boss could always know what you were thinking? A terrible.
2: I have no poker face. I've never played <laughs> poker either, so uh, I'm sure I'd be rubbish. But uh, no, heart must leave. Uh, everything is there to see, good and bad.
0: So we're gonna move on to the part of the podcast where we get a bit more personal now and it feels like we'd, that was a, a, a nice segue actually. So how do you like to spend your downtime? Do you have any guilty pleasures you can share with us?
2: <laughs> well, I've got four kids so um, as I said earlier, I, I, so I don't get an awful lot of downtime mm-hmm. so most uh, the reality is most of my time is, is with them. you know one of them's two so you know, two-year-olds just take over your whole your whole world. But if I do have some, some space, I, I, do, I do really enjoy fitness. It's my running, cycling. And I've taken, I took up yoga during lockdown, total cliche. In each case, they, they just give me an escape. They sort of take me away from whatever it is I've got going on. And I think I'm particularly running, it's as sort of, much mental as it is physical. Mm-hmm. So I, I really enjoy fitness. Um, but my, my big passion is cooking. I
0: absolutely love, love cooking. And has that been since before lockdown? That hasn't been a new thing?
2: Yeah, forever, really. Um, my mum taught me to cook uh, when I was in my teens. Uh, I remember sort of cooking and baking with her and it stuck with me. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's, uh, during lockdown, it just got even more acute. And I just, I mean, if you look at my um, Instagram feed, you'll see just how annoying it is. <laughs> There's a lot of sourdough on there. <laughs>
0: so is that your perfect weekend then, fitness and cooking?
2: Yeah, I, 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 can think of nothing better than hosting friends. Mm. I love it. I love the in fact I've got friends coming around next Saturday, so like a week, a weekend Saturday, and, and it's just despite it being that far away, I've all my mind's already going. I oh, I could do that. Maybe I could do that. And I'll get all the cookbooks out, research it ridiculously, and then and then I love buying the ingredients and then prepping and and hosting and stuff. That that's definitely my, my perfect weekend. And if if it wasn't that, I would be in the Alps snowboarding. I, I love snowboarding, and I haven't been able to do it for two years best part of so uh if not here then I'd be there
0: and how brilliant that we can have friends around again I just hope that feeling of gratitude for that doesn't go away
2: hugging people recently I've hugged people in a pub recently not not random people (laughs) actual friends but uh I would probably hug random people uh but it's been it's just been lovely Mm -hmm. the small things that really matters
1: and if you weren't in marketing and communications what else would you be doing maybe a chef (laughs) <laughs> I would
2: definitely be a chef I abs- no question it's really clear to me and I, the, I have actually thought about you know would I go and retrain and, the, mm. and then the reality of funding for kids and all the rest of it kicks in and you're like mm, probably not but I, I really would I would ha- take great joy in just working with food at day in day out I think and it's a very very hard job sort of yeah. under no illusions but um, but I, I would love being a chef or maybe a pro golfer nice I'm from St Andrews originally, you know. So I was born there, so it's in the blood a bit. So and I've got kind of back into golf in the last few while, which I, I love. So I've got the life of Riley. So I'd love a bit of that.
1: So it sounds like you're pretty adventurous with snowboarding, et cetera. What's the most adventurous thing that you've ever done?
2: When I travelled, I travelled around the world for a year, and I don't know what happens when you go travelling. You sort of slightly lose the plot and do things you would never normally do. But I, I in New Zealand especially. And in New Zealand, I did uh, not one, but two bungee jumps from a bridge about 100 metres above a river. And uh, It was like 85 metres or something. I did one forwards and one backwards.
1: Well, that's just foolish. <laughs> I mean, it is
2: foolish. But I actually really loved it. I mean, it was so exhilarating. And uh, yeah, not, not learning from the first time I, uh-huh. <laughs> I went and did it again. But uh, I was intrigued because I said, oh, you should do it backwards. I'm like, oh, yeah, I wonder if it will feel different. So... Yeah, I, I, I did that and, and enjoyed every minute of it.
0: Tamara and I are both
1: not very good with heights. Yeah. I, I don't know how we'd I get can on with that. see a bunch you of both don't. cringing. <laughs> <laughs> I remember being at the Grand Canyon, and my friends pretty much disowned me because I started. Shouting at random strangers, saying "Get away from the edge," because I was just so nervous at that point. And I, yeah, I was quite far from the edge, but was convinced I was going to fall off. So, yeah, I'm I'm, bungee jumping is not quite for me.
2: So you, you were metaphorically on the edge, (laughs) physically nowhere near it.
1: (laughs) If
0: Tamara and I could gift you an extra hour every single day, what would you do with it?
2: Well, I would like to think that I would sit quietly, right, and perhaps do something that I don't normally do, like uh, read a book. But in all honesty, I'd probably fill it. I'm an extrovert. I, I um, I, I take my energy from people, and so it's something that really annoys my partner Emma because you know I just can't sit quietly, mm. and I'm, I'm a notoriously bad book reader. There's a, a book that I was reading recently, which it took me—I mean, in small stints, mainly on holidays—took me three years to read. <laughs> <laughs> was it like, peace? No, it wasn't. It's was just a you know a ridiculous. Ian McEwan book, and I, <laughs> but I, I really enjoyed it. But I had to go, every time I went back to it, I then had to effectively reread the whole thing because I'd forgotten so much. So so sitting quietly is poor. So I'd like to think if you gave me a free hour, I'd, I'd use it for that. But I suspect it would be disrupted by some small person. At some point. Probably.
0: <laughs> how would your friends describe you? And is that the same as how you'd like them to describe you?
2: Uh, I think they would say I was playful and positive, warm, and, and driven, So sort of annoyingly competitive, quite opinionated, but, you know, with a good heart, I think. What I'd like them to say is that I was insanely rich. <laughs> but I'm not. And uh, I think that's highly unlikely to happen. But yeah, no, I, I, I think that's what I would want them to say.
1: And this feels like a, a good point to, to stop. But before we finish, and it's been so lovely to talk to you, Craig, but... Is there anything that we haven't asked you that you kind of wish that we had asked you, or do you want to sort of finish with any closing thoughts?
2: I think I just, I mean, just a closing thought. I think I've really enjoyed this. So uh, it's been fun and I hope, I hope your listeners have had fun listening, but, but beyond the fun, I, I think more importantly, I hope they've taken out the fact that being a genuine human isn't just a great name for a podcast, that actually being a genuine human, it is the key, I think, to building great relationships being successful in your career and being happy in your life.
0: You've been listening to Genuine Humans, brought to you by The Social Element. If you loved what you heard, Remember to subscribe, or you can find out more at www.thesocialelement.agency.